you're listening to B2B Revenue Acceleration, a podcast dedicated to helping software executives stay on the cutting edge of sales and marketing in their industry. Let's get into the show. Hi, welcome to B2B Revenue Acceleration. My name is Aurélien Motier, and I'm here today with Adam Honig, the CEO of Spyro.ai. How are you doing today, Adam? I'm doing excellent. How about yourself? Fantastic. Very, very good. So the topic that we want to discuss with you today, Adam, is around the top eight reasons no one is buying from you, which I think is absolutely fantastic. It's, a, it's that sort of disruptive title for a podcast that uh, I'm always looking for. But before we get uh, into, the, into the topic itself, would you mind introducing yourself as well as your company, Spyro.ai? Yeah, sure. No problem. Uh, Spiro, what we're all about is helping salespeople be more productive. And we've created a, a software platform that we call Proactive Relationship Management, which is essentially a way for artificial intelligence to help salespeople know what they need to do and do all the data entry that's normally associated with, with products like CRM for them. So they yeah. can spend the time you know, making calls, following up, having meetings, doing the sales things that they need to do, not the boring administrative crap that so often comes with sales. And Absolutely. so we have a software platform that does that. And actually, so what we're going to talk about today, the, the eight most common reasons why nobody's buying from you came from research that we discovered while we were building the product. Sure. Okay, that makes sense. So through your career, you've identified eight reasons why companies are not buying your product or services. Would you mind quickly walking us through those eight reasons? Yeah, sure. And and some of them, you know, uh, of course, not all of them apply to everybody. And some of them are kind of sad, actually, too. But but we'll we'll kind of go through them. When we built our product, Spiro, it uses artificial intelligence. And so we had to train the product with 20,000 salespeople to get the artificial intelligence working properly. And it was by working with these 20,000 salespeople that we discovered these trends about the reasons why people didn't buy. And no. one of the, the top reasons that we identified was the fact that people didn't have a unique selling proposition. That's a problem. Uh, and, yeah. and you would be amazed by the number of salespeople out there who are just, you know, trying to build relationships or, you know, make connections, but they never really say, hey, here's the thing that I can, you know, really, really help you with. Yeah. And so that's, uh, that's a major problem for a lot of people. And so we definitely, you know, encourage people to, to make that part of the conversation very, very early when they're engaging with prospects. Absolutely. Uh, speaking about prospects, the, the number two reason that we found that people are not making sales happen is that they're targeting the wrong people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know it's that, you know, I think, you know, when you're in sales, you know, the whole world is your oyster. You can convince anybody of anything, you know, perhaps you think, and, and that's, that's awesome. And, and, you know, we, we love enthusiasm in salespeople, but, you know, you can, you know, really waste a lot of time. Uh, and actually, what, what turns out is if you're a really, really good salesperson, you can actually make a lot of progress with the wrong people, only at yeah. the very end to have them say, hey, what, what is this? I don't understand. <laughs> you know, let's, let's yeah, move absolutely. on. So, so I'd say that this, you know, targeting the wrong people is actually something that's much more common for really good salespeople. So really good salespeople who are listening in today, keep this in mind. Just, just a quick one on that topic. When you say targeting the, the wrong people, would you say on the side of the right person, i.e. the wrong function, or would you say someone too junior in the organization? Or are you saying both? 
I'm saying both. I think that people generally have a good understanding of the type of company that should be buying their services. Yep. But what I find is even with my own sales team, you know, we're not talking with the person who's going to sign the contract. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're talking to an influencer, somebody who has a lot of impact on the decision, but maybe not the ultimate person. And then again, as you get further into the sales process, you kind of lose perspective because you're talking to the wrong person. Mm-hmm. Completely. Yeah. I mean, we had a, a sales situation going on the other day where we fought, we were very far along with, with a prospect and we finally got the CEO of this company on the phone. And the CEO's primary concern was all about project management and not about sale. And that kind of derailed everything in our pursuit, you know? So you got to really know who the decision maker is and make sure that they're part of the conversation. Completely. We've got a ton of examples, but one of the most obvious ones that I've seen in my in my life, which is... Uh, you know, around the, the the level of authority in the in, in in an account that you are selling into, I was speaking to one of our clients' inside sales team, and they were uh-huh. struggling in converting inbound inquiries into revenue. And as you know, when someone is doing an inquiry, it might not be the CEO of the company doing an inquiry, but it will be someone walking into someone else's team that will be doing some research. And unfortunately, being inside sales, most of those guys were pretty junior. And unfortunately, when you are working with someone who is also pretty junior in an organization, they make you feel very comfortable in the sales process. And often people confuse that level of comfort with the level of authority. And because you are comfortable and someone responds to your call, because someone responds to your email, you may think that you're going to get the deal. But unfortunately, you know, one of the questions I ask them is, well, how many times in the last few weeks have you heard one of your prospects say, I am so sorry, very, very sorry, but my boss decided to go another way. I don't understand. I, I don't understand why I really wanted to work with you, but my boss decided to do something else. And and 80% of them raised their hands. So yeah, definitely engaging with the right people, barking at the right tree is very important. Yeah, yeah. And I, I personally believe that the language that you use to try to figure out whether somebody's the right person on is super critical. I, yeah. I have a degree in philosophy. And so I'm all about language. But, but you know, if you say to somebody, are you the decision maker on this? I mean, of course, they're going to say yes. <laughs> it's like, why wouldn't they say yes? So I always try to work, you know, with our sales team to try to, you know, ask a lot of different questions and try to figure out how to navigate the account that way. Because I think that's so critical. Absolutely. Moving on to number three, then, I guess now. Moving on to number three. And, and this is a sad one. But sometimes the product or service that you're selling just, well, it's not that good. Uh, it might, you know, you might think it's really good, but maybe, maybe it isn't. You know, I feel like early in my career, you know, working with a bunch of young salespeople, it was very common for us to blame the lack of features or something yeah. in the product for, for the sales. But sometimes, you know, it's true. And, you know, I think that you have to look at your peers and, you know, if, if they're not outperforming you, if everybody's not getting it done, well, it might be time to think about selling something else. Well, that's disruptive as well. I like it. Moving on to number four. Number four. You know, this is related to it, but we we deal with a lot of customers who sell in very, very competitive markets. And it can definitely be the case that a company, that a, a market gets oversaturated. And, and this is also related to the USP, the unique selling proposition. But, you know, if, if you are selling something that can easily be purchased from many, many vendors, you know, how do you differentiate yourself? And, you yep. know, sometimes, you know, it's the market 
is just really not the right thing that you should be targeting. And you have to kind of, as my my friend Christopher Lockhead says, you have to kind of niche down, get much more specific about what you're trying to do to kind of help you stand out from the oversaturation of the market. That's, that's very true. We, we actually see that ourselves with uh, in the UK market, where we see a lot of software company startups. Everybody basically is lending in the UK from Asia, from Israel, from all the places, the US, obviously, all the places where, where you've got lots of, uh, lots of very good software brands. And everybody, when they come into Europe, tend. We see, we see more and more going to Netherlands and other places. But the, the traditional route is to get into the UK, which means that the UK prospects, the UK end user can be quite confused with, with different value proposition. There is so many best of breed solutions. It becomes very difficult to uh, differentiate yourself. So yeah, we, we do definitely feel that. Yeah. And, you know, the, the buyer gets really confused and, and overwhelmed. And often that can prompt a no decision right there because there's just so many options before them. You know, and, and a lot, there's a lot of studies, of course, that show that the more choices that people make that they have available to them, that when they ultimately make the decision, they're going to be less satisfied just because they never know what the right thing that they should be doing. Yeah. Do you see also the, the local competition? So if I take an example of... Uh, the German market, we, we like to say, and I think the German also like to say it, that, you know, we are German, we buy German. So I take the example of, I don't know, Ford trying to sell cars in Germany. If you can go to Germany and you go on the Autobahn, which is the motorway, you'll see a lot of Mercedes, Audi, you know, BMW, which are the three main brands that are German made. But it's actually difficult to sell sometimes in a territory where there is a local competitor do you also see that as a as a potential issue why people would not be buying from you? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's funny that you mentioned this because I was in uh, Munich a couple of weeks back and we drove down to Tyrol in Austria. My yeah. friend who drove me had a Hyundai and I thought that was really yeah, unusual. And so Very on the way down, I was noticing how many Hyundais we passed, which was almost none. You know? yeah, so, exactly. yeah, that's a. A very, very strong, you know, driver in, in, in these kind of situations. And I think Ford in particular has done a really terrible job of positioning themselves to, to appear local in a way. And some other brands like McDonald's or, you know, other folks have done much better about making them be local, even though they're multinational or global organizations. Yeah, absolutely. But the, yeah. the only definition is, I think the, the only difference is probably that McDonald's may not have had a local competitor there and actually created the brand sprint very quickly. But yeah, for, for, for car manufacturer, it's got to be absolutely horrible in, uh, in Germany. But there, there you go. Yeah. I mean, so going back to the market being oversaturated, though, I mean, I would say that, you know, in, in a place like France, the food market is pretty oversaturated. You know, oh, so yeah. even though they had a new type of way of approaching the, the food market, I mean, everybody was still eating every day. So there's yeah. no shortage. Absolutely. <laughs> Actually, in France, if you go to Paris, you know, your company will give you money as part of benefits to go for lunch. So, uh, so it's, uh, it's quite important to, uh, it's, it's quite important for the French to go and eat. But yeah, the, the market is actually opening up. I think a few years back, definitely when I was a kid, the French writing French. Now, you know, you see a lot of sushi restaurants, lots of fusion. So at least we're opening up to the world. We're being a little bit less arrogant with our food. But now I, I mm. get your point. Yeah. But, well, just kind of kind of moving back to some of the stuff that we discovered, you know, another really, really big reason, you know, why people don't buy is because your product is not valued enough. And, and this is something that we see a lot of that, you know, mm -hmm. companies are selling something that may be like the fifth or sixth highest priority that an organization has. 
but it really needs to be like the top one, two or three to make the cut these days, you know? So are you saying, and, uh, you know, it's a nice to have. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. People like it. They can see it, but maybe the, the ROI isn't that strong, or maybe it's hard to quantify yeah. the ROI, you know, or maybe, you know, it, it, you know, just in the corporate, you know, strategy, it's just not, you know, that important for them and what they're trying to achieve right this minute. You know, and we, we always encourage salespeople to try to understand the corporate and departmental strategy of the groups that they're selling to, to see how their, uh, their service or product aligns with that, or at least to make yeah. the case, of course, that it does. But yeah, that's, that's another really big killer in the sales process. Okay. So that's, that's why we are, we are at number seven, I believe now. Yes. Yes. And so the, the last two are really about, sales people themselves and sort of the, the things that sales people do. And one, one for me is really about building trust, right? And we have a very strong belief that, you know, people buy, you know, based a lot on kind of emotional conditions because it's very hard to, you know, fully assess the whole rational intent of purchasing a product. And so they have to, people have to rely upon these other clues to know if they're kind of going in the right way. And one of them is trust of a salesperson and trust of an organization. And often, you know, we see salespeople going for the close that's just premature, that they shouldn't be. And they, they kind of lose trust with the prospect because they're trying to make something happen on their time frame as opposed to the prospect's time frame. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then that ties directly to, you know, my big fear, <laughs> which, which is about being too pushy. You know, and if you look at a lot of, um, so we, we were very active on a lot of uh, sales forums on Facebook and LinkedIn and stuff like that. And, you know, there's a lot of stories by customers who are who feel like salespeople are just being too pushy. You know, I don't know if this has ever happened to you with, with a salesperson, but being too pushy can often actually really backfire on you and get the customer or prospect not wanting to deal with you at all. And that kills as many sales, you know, as anything else, I think. So yeah, very interesting about the too soft, too pushy. I mean, I've been told myself both. I've been told by sales manager that I've been too soft. I've been told by sales manager I've been too pushy. I've been told by clients that I could have been a little bit harder on them. And I've been told by clients I've been too pushy. So I'm interested about that balance. And, and, and my question to you is, how do you find that right balance between being too soft and being too pushy? Well, it's, it's really tricky, you know, as you said, and, and actually it's a great sales interview question. I always ask this question of salespeople when I'm interviewing them. I say, what's the thing that you did that was just pushy enough, but you wouldn't want to go any more pushy to really get their take on that. But, you know, for me, you know, I, I think it starts with trying to keep the customer or prospect in mind. I mean, we as salespeople are there to help them achieve something. And I think we get too pushy when we try to make it all happen for us. Oh, it's the end of the month. It's the end of the quarter. You know, how do we make something happen by them? Maybe it aligns with their goals. Maybe it doesn't align with their goals. But it's our job to, you know, take what they need and merge it with what we need, not just kind of push our own agenda on them. And I think, I think as long as you're doing that, I think that you won't come out too pushy in the process. Yeah, would you say it's basically pressure, the pressure of the number. You are at the end of the quarter, at the end of the year, or you're better, you're halfway through the year, but you are tracking behind your number. So your own agenda, which is driving more number and potentially the pressure of your boss would, would pressurize you in being too pushy. Yes, I think that's a major driver of it. You know, and you have the quarters coming up and you really want the sale to come in and, 
you know, you stop caring about, you know, helping the customer, which is what we're trying to do. And you're trying to get that thing done by the end of the month. And, you know, I, I think it's perfectly fine to make it reciprocal. Hey, if I help you with this or that or the other thing, can you help me by making sure we get this done by the end of the month, grade or quarter or year or what have you? Uh, but but even, you know, those timing discussions about when things are going to happen should happen way sooner than, you know, yeah. the big rush at the end of the quarter. So I think that miss expectation is what causes, you know, a, a lot of pushiness. The, the other thing that causes a lot of pushiness, of course, is the fact that prospects really do not respond to us in the way that we would like them to. I mean, we would like them to call us back, for example, or reply to right. an email or something like that. And I think just that that frustration that builds up about the lack of engagement from that prospect that you had this great conversation with two days yeah. ago, and now they won't even return your call or email. Like, and that, so I think that you know kind of gets under our skin, and and we lose the sight that you know maybe the prospect is uh, having some sort of challenge that they're dealing with, or so, maybe a personal thing, or whatever. And then we get all aggressive and pushy, and they're like, "Oh, this guy's a jerk. Why did I even think it was a good conversation with them?" And then you never hear from them, and you don't know why. Yeah, or sometimes maybe it's because what well, discussion they realize after after math that he was he was a nice to have, not a must have, or maybe he was not the right person. So yeah, it's uh, it's it's always interesting. I think from my perspective, the 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 best way and it's, it's a statement, and I know it's difficult. And you need to start somewhere, but when you've been in a company and you are in sales for a certain period of time, is to just ensure that you've got enough pipeline at any time of the quarter, at any time of the year, so you're not dependent on deals. So if you're not dependent on deals, you can let you can allow for a prospect to be two months late without being anxious yes. about it. You can allow, and and it's it's a rich thing to say because of that's the that's the perfect world. But avoiding tension by having enough is great. And then the beauty of that is at the end of the quarter, when it's your prospect putting you under pressure potentially because he can go the other way as well. If you deal with procurement team, you have leverage and you've got the best leverage that they they, they are using against you, which is type. And if it's up next quarter, it doesn't matter. So that's the beauty. I mean, that would be, I guess, one of the one of the solutions that I've seen in the past. Now, I would like to come back to one of the points, number mm -hmm. three. Number three, which is your product is not great. I've got the opportunity, I've got the chance to to work closely and to have customers who are entrepreneurs, who are people who've built up their own solution, built up their own products. And, you know, it's their baby. And what you are telling them with number three is that their baby is ugly, okay? So that's not a great, great thing to say, but it's probably the right thing to say if it's true. Now, I would expect people to, to resist that, first of all. So I, I would expect you know, someone who's been spending a few years in, in pushing a product or a service to market to react slightly aggressively to that sort of statements. But I, I also think it's tough to discern if it would be, or, or to understand if it's a product issue or a value proposition issue. So I'd like to come back slightly on that, that point, and it would be good if you could elaborate a little bit more on the topic for us and how you go about solving that issue. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, it's, it's something that's very near and dear to me because, you know, we, we launched Spiro, the product, uh, two years ago, and we had spent, you know, a couple of years of building it before that. And so achieving, you know, what, what a lot of people call product market fit, you know, making sure that what you've delivered is, is something that people need is so hard because, you know, yeah. entrepreneurship, you know, and, and new products are so often born by somebody's just burning, you know, insight that this thing is important and, and then you have to go test it. 
right? But I think that the way that I look at a lot of products, new products, is that they're really caterpillars and that they're not butterflies. And that there's a, a natural, you know, growth of a product over time that can make it a butterfly. And the goal of the salesperson and the goal of the executive, the founder, the missionary, you know, leader for this product is to sell the customer on the benefit of the butterfly and show them the path of how to get there and not necessarily, you know, be focused on the, the here and now. And I, I, f- I find that a lot of early stage companies are, are not doing enough of that. They're not kind of setting the, the stage for what's going to be happening. So, and, and which responsibility would it be then? Because again, you, you've got some fantastic, particularly in the technology space, you've got some fantastic code people, developer people, so they can develop the product. And, and then you've got the marketing and the sales team that are speaking to customers we would expect on a daily basis. So how do you see this, the feedback coming back up and everything? Is there any specific best practices that you've seen in the past that you could share with our audience in, 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 in getting this resolved? If, if, you're, if you feel you're in that situation? Yeah, well, so, I mean, so for a, you know, a, an organization that has a sales team that's selling a product and the leadership is concerned that their baby might be ugly, as you put it, not me, I didn't say that, you said that. I'm but, so sorry. Uh, at any rate, <laughs> at any rate um, you know, so we would definitely encourage them to spend a lot of time in trying to understand the reasons why they're losing the deal. You know, and, you know, if if the feedback is coming back that it's, you know, related to point number six, that it's just not valuable enough, you know, that's the area that I would be most concerned. You know, if it's price, if it's timing, if it's, you know, if you're just getting told no, you're not getting any meetings, that those are all things that you can understand really well, you know. Okay. But but if you're in that zone where it's like, it's a nice to have, mm-hmm. that's that's the problem area. You know, so you need to, you know, go deeper into the type of customer that you're selling to and understanding what are their key strategies or initiative, what's going on in that industry that you can hook your product to and make sure that that product really fulfills. Otherwise, you know, you might go from ugly to less ugly, but you're never going to go to, you know, the kind of product you need, a butterfly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes perfect sense. Well, I would like to thank you very much, Adam, for your, your time today and sharing uh, all your insights with, with our audience. So if anyone, so that's, that's a question that we ask to everyone, but if anyone wants to get in touch with you personally or engage around Spiro.ai and, 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 and discuss your services in more details, what's the best way to get all of you? Sure. Well, uh, people can certainly find out a lot of information about Spiro, the the product at Spiro.ai is our website. Uh, we, we have a very active blog where we publish two or three times a week about sales content, tips about selling or, you know, strategies to overcome, you know, situations in sales. And so you might want to check that out. But if, if people want to reach me, you can email me directly at Adam at Spiro.ai or reach me on Twitter. And my Twitter handle is Adam Honig, A-D-A-M. M-H-O-N-I-G. And it's really been great to be talking with you today. Well, it was great to have you on the show today, Adam. Operatics has redefined the meaning of revenue generation for technology companies worldwide. While the traditional concepts of building and managing inside sales teams in-house has existed for many years, companies are struggling with a lack of focus, agility, and scale required in today's fast and complex world of enterprise technology sales. See how Operatics can help your company accelerate pipeline at operatics.net. 
You've been listening to B2B Revenue Acceleration. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.